ask you what drove your decision-making process, uh, what would you answer me? Would you say convenience? I'd say, why did you make that decision? Was it convenient for you? Were there fears that motivated you to make that particular decision? Was it personal advancement? Right? I didn't think much more about it other than the fact that it allows me uh, a, a higher place in society. Is it faith? When you think about why did I make that decision, was it based upon my faith in, in Christ? Was it a combination of all of those things? Romans 14, 23, as it's talking about the need for discernment as we're making decisions in our lives, whether it be as we see in the context of Romans 14, uh, shall I eat meat sacrificed to idols that's for selling the meat market? And Paul's saying, what you got to do is you need to use discernment. You need to not violate your conscience because what matters is particular things that need discernment, things that aren't the black and white, right? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie, all those things. There's, there's other things in life that you have to have wisdom and discernment to make those decisions. And, and Paul says in verse 23, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so as we see this, what Paul's saying, you know, what should drive and motivate every decision you make is nothing else but faith alone. If faith is not the motive, if faith is not the drive behind the decision making, we see in Scripture that it's clearly sin. Matthew 8, 23-27 is where we are this morning, and I want you to open up in your Bible there with me. If you have your Bible, if you don't, we have Bibles in the back. If not, open up your phone, ask your neighbor for a Bible. All the truth that we know that God wants us to understand is found here in Scripture, and we want to put our eyes on it. So I want you to turn to Matthew 8, 23 through 27. And it's here as Jesus shows us that it's faith alone that's the only appropriate motive behind our decision-making. As a matter of fact, it's our preaching point this morning is that Jesus calls us to exercise faith in his supreme authority, even in the most fearful circumstances. You only got half of that up there. We'll have to correct that for the 11 o'clock. There you go. But you can take it from me that the other half is right here on my notes. (laughs) Even in the most fearful circumstances circumstances. And I want us to do this morning is I want us to start at the end of this account. I don't want us to start at the beginning. I want us to start at the end because the wonderful thing about what we have when it comes to the Word of God is we have the end of the story. Amen? Are we awake nine o'clock? All right. We have the end of the story, which means we can look at the end and we can now in our own life make decisions concerning our faith based upon the whole story. And there may be a lot of your story yet to be written, which is just how it is as we're living day to day, But we don't have to wonder about who God is and what he calls us to when we look at this and we start from the end. And so I'd love for you to look at verse 27 with me, and we'll work backwards through this text. Verse 27. After Jesus had calmed the storm, it says this, that the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? What kind of man? Is that what that word means? What class of man is this that even... Winds and sea obey him. You know, interesting in verse 27, uh, when it says the men marveled, you often do not read the gospel writers calling the disciples just men. Usually, they say the disciples marveled. 
They often classify them as the group that they are, the, the disciples. But here, Matthew doesn't classify them as disciples like he does later. He just calls them men. And then these men, they marveled, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, what class of man is this? I believe that verse 27 is asking us to do something particular. That's why we have man and man and not disciples in Jesus. I think what we see here is a need for us to compare the two kinds of men that we see in this portrait here that Matthew is painting on the Sea of Galilee. We have the disciples, and then we have Jesus, right? We have these two classifications, which is what these men are saying. What kind of man is Jesus? What class of humanity is Jesus? Because when we think about the disciples, and in extension, when we think about our lives particularly, what we end up doing is we see the storms in our life, we see the trials ahead, we see a lot of the fearful circumstances, and we respond a lot a lot like the disciples that we've read in the text that Pastor Evan read to you earlier. Great fear, great dread. And, and here we have these men who are being tossed to and fro by all the winds of the sea. We have these men who are fearing their own existence on earth. And then we have Jesus who's over there asleep on the boat. The disciples recognize that whatever we're doing, however we're responding is quite different than, than Jesus. And not only is the response different, but the utter control and authority over the winds and the sea require the disciples to look at themselves and weigh themselves against Christ, which is what I think is a very important part of this text that we ought to recognize as we're understanding our relationship with God through Christ who Christ is, what authority Christ has in our life, and what we deal with on a regular basis. I start at the end of this because I think it's going to be so important for you and I to compare Christ and ourselves, categorically asking the question, who is Jesus? Is he like me? Is he like you? This is what the disciples are doing, isn't it? This man is just not like us. This man not only responds to circumstances differently than me, but he is able to exercise complete dominion over the things that scare me and put me in the most dread in my life. What kind of man is Jesus? Which is something I think you must answer, and you must answer it in a particular way, because I dare not, and I hope you don't, make the mistake that we see in Psalm 50, verse 21, where as God is pronouncing judgment on Israel, he says, you made this one mistake. And this one mistake is you thought I was like you. See, that's the mistake that Israel had made numerous times. And unfortunately, that's the mistake that many in our culture make about who God is. And you could watch the Super Bowl ad this week about Jesus that tries to make Jesus just like you and me. And the most important thing that we can recognize in our faith is that he is not like you and me. Actually, what makes it remarkable when you think about the incarnation of Christ is that though he was not like you and me, he came to take our place. He came to take on our humanity. I think that's the wonderful part as, as you look at this later that we'll see that he's asleep. Why is he asleep? Because he feels tired, something you and I feel. But notice, we're not going to get to it right now, we'll get to it in a moment, 
that his response of being tired and being in a dreadful situation is quite different than most of our responses about being in a dreadful situation while we're really tired. And that's for later. But just to recognize here, we have to ask this question. Who is Jesus? And categorically, how Jesus is quite different than you and me. The evidence shows us even here that these eyewitness testimonies show the supremacy of Christ over nature itself. Right? We, we've already saw that it's not sickness that can overcome the power of Christ. Right? It isn't uh, distance, geographically speaking, when you think about the centurion. Right? It isn't the kind of sickness. It isn't the demonic powers of the world. It is, it is even the, the various kinds of sickness. All those things, Jesus proved that he had authority over all those things. And here we find ourselves in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the boat being swamped with water. He's asleep over there in the boat. The disciples are freaking out. He wakes up. He calms them, questions their faith, calms the storm, and says, why do you have such a little faith? And they looked at him, and they marveled, and they had to consider the supremacy of Christ. And that's what I want you to do this morning. Point number one. You need to consider the supremacy of Christ. Like, who is Christ? I, I want to start at the end of this because I think if we work from back to front, you're going to recognize that every single thing that you're going to deal with in your life as you consider the supremacy of Christ can be submitted to Christ, trusting in his authority and producing a faith in you that is unlike anything that we see in the world that we live in. But we must consider why we can have faith in Christ. We must consider what is distinct about him that allows us to place our trust and our confidence in him in spite of the situations that we deal with in our own lives. What I want you to do is I want you to turn with me to the letter to the Colossians in your Bible. We're getting there. Flip open. Open those Bibles up. There we go. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start there in verse 15. I want you to think about the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. There in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, with that in mind, it says this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Prototokos, right? He's the proto, he's the first. Verse 16. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And as you think about that, I want you to think about Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. We understand as we're reading the text that all things were created in heaven and on earth. So he is just doing his job as he's on the Sea of Galilee. The very molecules that he's created in the sky, in the sea, he is just bringing them under the same dominion that he brought them forth at creation. The same Christ who created the world is subduing and ruling the world, and God has called us to trust him in faith that he has the authority and dominion over creation. There in verse 16, whether we're talking about things that are visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers in authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. We'll be thinking a, a bit as we talk about this text the, about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? We believe in the work of Christ because of the person of Christ. Right? We ask the question all the time, and you ought to ask it, why is Jesus sufficient to save me from my sins and to place me holy before the God of the universe? Well, it is because of the person that he is. He is the firstborn. All things have made by him and through him. Being the firstborn of creation doesn't mean that he's a created being. It's the point of saying he's preeminent. There is nothing before him. He is before all things. And that's why you read that there in first, or you read that there uh, in Colossians chapter 1, that he is preeminent. And his preeminent states his position in creation and his authority and dominion over all things. And because of this, who he is, what he has accomplished through his nature, through his agency, who he is and what he's done, will for us engender and build confidence and our trust in him to accomplish the things that he said he would do. Right? When your child says, I want to go to the moon, that's quite a statement. There is nothing in your child's person, in their agency, that would engender confidence in you that your child is going to the moon anytime soon. Right? You see the difference between something said and something that is actually capable of being done. But here we have Christ who is both in his agency, in his personhood, is capable, as we even see in this text, of taking the wind and taking the sea and putting it under his authority, which is exactly the thing that you see all through Matthew, that he continues to say, I have the authority. Matthew 28, one of your favorite passages, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Revelation Right? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Right? All those things are under the authority of Christ. You've got to consider the supremacy of Christ if you're going to begin making decisions driven by your faith in him. Because when you recognize that there's nothing outside the sovereign power and control of Christ, then you begin living your life quite differently, don't we? We begin living our life quite differently when we see everything in front of us and we recognize that every bit of that, every molecule in front of you is being directed by Christ himself. And that is before, during, and after the storm, you recognize. It wasn't after the storm that Jesus had control over every molecule. It was even as the storm was raging, Christ had dominion. And so just because you're in a situation and you're in a struggle and you're in a trial doesn't mean Christ has any less control over your situation than before or after your circumstances. In this whole picture, what we see is the supremacy of Christ in the storm, through the storm, before the storm, and after the storm. And what we've got to do is we've got to consider the supremacy of Christ both in this text, because that's what it's asking us to do, but also in our own lives. God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? Again, that, that's a, a straight claim to the authority and sovereignty of God. And he looks at his servant Jeremiah and he says, Look around, is there anything too difficult for me? And our answer to that, good Christians, is... No. And if that is your answer to the supremacy of God in Christ over everything, then how ought you deal with your life? How ought you handle 
the decisions in your life by faith, not by fear, not by convenience, not based on personal advancement, by faith in Christ that he will accomplish that which he has set out to do. And you may not know what that is in the moment. I guarantee you the disciples in the midst of that storm did not know at the forefront of that or even in the midst of the storm what the purpose of that was for until Christ fulfilled his purpose in the life of the disciples in the scene of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And that may be the same for you. As a matter of fact, it will be the same for you. But yet we sit here understanding and considering the supremacy of Christ, asking ourselves, is there anything too hard for God? And we know that it's not, and so we have to rest in the supremacy of Christ over everything. And then we begin laying the foundation for what it looks like to live life by faith in Christ. You ask the question, who is more equipped to handle our nation? Not us, right? Come fall, right? not the candidate that you vote for. Uh, we understand who is best fit to handle the problems that we find in our nation. It's not, it's not us. What about your marriage? Who's going to be more sufficient to reign supreme over your marriage? Is it going to be you or is it going to be Christ? You're struggling with employment? Whatever it is, I want you to recognize that in every circumstance in your life, you have to trust and consider the supremacy of Christ in everything. Because we, we talk about theology, right? we talk about the sovereignty of God, that God reigns over everything. But all theology is practical theology, and oftentimes you may say that you believe something about God, but your practical theology says that you don't. Right? We, all, we want to say we want to trust God in our salvation. We want to trust God with the outcome of world history. But we don't want to trust God with the outcome of our lives, our marriages, our employment, and our day-to-day decisions in our life. We're saying, well, God, well God, God is not big enough. Somehow God's not big enough to take care of my life. But yet he's big enough to bring everything in world history to his perfect end. Right? It's, it's a backwards theology, isn't it? We've got to consider the supremacy of Christ and recognize that his supremacy is over all of the universe down to the very molecules of time and space and the atomic makeup of you and me. And all of those things, he reigns supreme. And in his work that he's accomplished in the supremacy of Christ and that, that very precious work that we look and we talk about frequently is that he conquered death on behalf of those who are being saved you want to talk about the supremacy that Christ has? What are you most afraid of? Why do you go to the doctor all the time? What are you trying to keep from happening in the near future? What is the world trying to keep from happening? Why did everything shut down in COVID so many years ago? Because people didn't want to die. And yet we have Christ here, supreme over everything, died in our place, and raised three days later. What did he do? He conquered the very fears of all men. You want to know the other thing that we ought to fear that many do that so many others don't is standing before God on the day of judgment. Christ conquered death and conquered your sins so that you will no longer fear to stand before God, but be looking forward to stand before God on the day of judgment, that you would stand justified in Christ. What are you afraid of if you understand the supremacy of Christ? You see, understanding the supremacy of Christ, it ought to produce great faith in your life. It's a lesson the disciples learned in verses 24 through 26. I want you to look at that with me. 
there in chapter 8, starting in verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. You see, the Sea of Galilee was over 600 feet below sea level. If you go over to Jerusalem, you go over to Israel, you recognize that place is very low below sea level. Some of the, the lowest place in the world is found over there in that region, and most things find themselves below sea level. The thing about the Sea of Galilee, if you've ever been there, uh, and as I was there and you look out on the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's resting at the bottom of very steep ravines, all right? And if you've lived in an area uh, with a lot of steep ravines, very low uh, below the sea level, what you're going to recognize is as the wind blows, it whips through those ravines, okay? And if they're whipping through those ravines and it terminates at a body of water, what's going to happen to that water? It's going to whip up pretty fast, it's not uncommon in the Sea of Galilee to have waves five, six, seven, eight, nine feet tall in such a small body of water because of the geographical makeup of the region. And we have that there, and the story tells us that this boat there in verse 24 was being swamped, that means covered, by the waves. Uh, one commentator suggests this, that, uh, that at the trough of the wave, uh, you could not see the disciples of the boat because as they looked to their left and they looked to the right, all they could see was about seven, eight foot tall waves and they were down at the bottom of it. And they were seeing and all they could think about was, what am I going to do? I'm going to die. But Jesus, I want you to notice here, Jesus was asleep. It's important that you see the humanity and the divinity of Christ are clearly in view in this text. He was tired. He had a long day. He had many demands. He was healing people. He was teaching people. And that in any human is going to exhaust them. Talk to any preacher after they've preached multiple sermons. They're tired. Jesus, after preaching, after healing, after doing his work, is in the boat and he's tired. And interestingly, note this. He was tired and asleep during the same storm that the disciples were lacking faith. Jesus did not lack any faith in the care of his Father. And you, you must take note to that, right? Because people are, like, well, people are going to ask, well, in that situation, who would trust? Who? And everyone would be freaking out in that situation. No, not, not everyone, because Jesus, completely man, completely God, but completely man, entrusted himself to the care of his father in circumstances. And you know what he was able to do? He was able to rest. Do you need to hear that again? He was able to rest in difficult circumstances because he entrusted himself to the sovereignty of God. And if that's you, look at me. You go through difficult times. Every one of us, if you live on planet Earth, you go through difficult times. And a lot of times we exasperate our difficult times because we do not trust in the sovereignty of God. We are trying to take every situation under our control. We don't have the capacity or the propensity or the ability to bring things underneath our control. And so we worry about it. We fret about it. We're trying to figure out how to get out of it. And what we see here is Jesus doing the will of the Father getting on the boat, resting in the boat in the midst of the storm, and everybody who does not exercise faith in Christ looks and says, how is he doing that? What are you doing? I mean, that's really the question. They don't look at him and admire him and say, oh, man, isn't that so nice that he trusts in the Father? They look and say, what are you doing? Right? Which is often the look that faithful Christians get when they're trusting the Lord in the midst of their difficult decisions. What are you doing? Don't you see all these things going around? And it's a lesson that you and I should take seriously of what it actually looks like in the midst of difficult circumstances to trust in the care of the Father. And Jesus does it perfectly as he's asleep there on the boat. 
And he's not only exercising great faith and trust in his father, he's actually preparing the situation for such a wonderful object lesson, isn't he? Because he's going to get up, as we've, you've read the story a million times since the time you were in Sunday school to the time you're here right now. You've read it enough to know not only was his faith in his father a remarkable response in the midst of terrible circumstances, that then he gets up and he proves to the disciples why they had nothing to worry about when they were worrying about nothing all along. I'm not saying the danger's not real. I'm not saying your problems aren't real. But it's time that we understand that Christ is supreme and God is sovereign. And we trust and have confidence that God is bringing all things to the purpose of his good ends for our life. And that is going to bring a peculiar response to the Christian that the world knows not. You see, the disciples in verse 25, they were not so confident in the care of their father because they ran over to Jesus and they woke him up and they said, Save us, Lord, we're perishing, we're dying. And Jesus said to them, notice the, what Jesus does first. Do you notice this? Jesus doesn't first heal the storm. Heal the storm. He doesn't calm the storm. He confronts the disciples. And he says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Right? If you were wondering just how Jesus was dealing with the storm... He thought, you know what, in the midst of nine-foot storms at the bottom of the trough with the wind whipping and, and existential realities hitting them right in the face, he thought, this is the perfect time to disciple these men. And he, in, before he even calms the storm, looks at them and says, why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? It's only after he addresses them that he addresses the storm. Then he arose, verse 26, rebuked the winds, and the sea, and there was a great calm. You ever been in a pool, and, and you, you shake the pool around? I don't know, you're, a lot of you are from California. You ever been in the ocean? You know how hard it is to calm water? Right? And even if you could, right, even if the storm breaks, right, what ends up happening is the waves are big, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and then it's calm. But that's not what we see in the text here, is it? That the minute that he rebuked the winds and the sea, we didn't say, well, the skies cleared up, but the waves were, were, were still going. They were still tall, and they were getting smaller and smaller. That's not what it says. He rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Every molecule, every atom, every ounce of water had no choice but to obey the command of its creator. Why are we so worried? Why are we so fearful? If the wind and the sea, if the earth and the whole universe bow at the command of Jesus, what manner of faith should we have? Should our faith be lacking? Should our faith be fearful? Or should we have a bold faith? Point number two, I want you to write it down this way. You need to see your lack of faith as a serious problem. You need to see your lack of faith as a serious problem. And I get it. People are like, well, aren't we just human? Guys, you being just human, me being just human, is why Christ came to take our place. It's the same argument, right? Everything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And in Romans 6, you go to the book of Romans, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And the answer is, by no means should we do those things. So if we shall not sin that grace may abound, and we understand that the biggest thing that God had to overcome in your life to save you was what? A lack of faith. Why, why aren't people saved? A lack of faith. What does God have to overcome in your life to save you? A lack of faith. Then we recognize that the biggest sin that we deal with is lack of faith. 
then we still understand that even as you are a Christian and you're living your life, what is the biggest thing that you need to entrust yourself to God to produce in your life? Faith. And when we don't, Scripture makes it clear that God is not pleased. Hebrews 10. I want you to open up to Hebrews 10. Our students have been studying Hebrews 10 over the last few days, and I thought it would be wonderful to look at Hebrews, get on the same page as some of our students as we think about what it looks like to have faith. Chapter 10, starting there in verse 38, it says this, that that my righteous one, right, my sanctified ones, right, my hagios, those who have been saved and redeemed in Christ, shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What is God's thought about his children not exercising faith in him? He's not pleased with it. He's not pleased. And how do I know that he's... Because you can like, well, isn't he talking about sin here? Well, isn't he, you know, you know, what is the context? Well, I'll read the context. Read all of chapter 11. You may be familiar with chapter 11, which is the next verse after this. Chapter 11 is all about all the people who exercised great faith in God and did great things for God. The writer of Hebrews says, It is the righteous who shall live by faith. If they shrink back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And in verse 39, sums it up when it comes to what a Christian does. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What is this, the normal response of the Christian? Faith. What saved you? Faith. What sustains you? Faith. How do you base your decisions in your life? By faith. It didn't change. We don't have this certain metric for salvation and then a different metric for sanctification. We trust in the same God who overcome our lack of faith to save us as the same God who emboldens our faith to sanctify us and move us forward in our faith. It's the same God. It's the same faith. And we must not make excuses when we lack faith, to say things like the disciples, is how, how did we know? Well, we do know. We have the end of the story in view here. We live our lives by the measure of faith. You ask this question, do you believe God is sovereign over your life? Do you believe that God is sovereign over the universe? Do you believe God is sovereign over salvation? Well, then what is, what is left? Is there anything left that God doesn't have utter control over? in our life, that we ought to just say, I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. Now, with that being said, in a few ways of application, right, and, I, and I get this because I think many people, uh, not trusting in the sovereignty of God is almost only half the issue. I think so many times, really the other half of the issue, is we know that whatever storm and situation we got into, a lot of those, we got ourselves into that situation. And so we're not actually so fearful about that God isn't sovereign over it. But now we're sitting here saying, I've sinned, I've fallen short, I've got myself into this storm, and I'm just figuring out what's my part in this now. What does it mean now that I've got myself into this situation? Is God going to discipline me? How is that going to work? Am I going to lose my relationship? Am I going to lose my job? And those Those are valid concerns, aren't they? Because the Bible does say that God disciplines those he loves. He chastises all those that he calls son. Right? We understand just by being empirical human beings that when it comes to sin, you have these spiritual consequences of sin between you and God, and you have social consequences of sin, don't you? You have social consequences of sin. You commit a crime. 
right? You ask God for forgiveness, you may be forgiven, but you still have consequences with the judicial system, don't you? We recognize that there's a lot of times we get into those situations. And, and the one thing that I would ask you to do, if that's you, is ask if there's anything you need to turn from. Right? You want to start trusting in God and you see your lack, as a, your lack of faith as a serious problem. I think before we figure out how to look to God and how he controls everything that goes on on this world and how he brings it all into submission to his will, we should ask, is there anything I need to turn from? Do I need to repent because so often there are many storms that we, we have in our life simply because we have created them through our disobedience and our sin and our lack of repentance. And I think it's easy because the point here is faith, right? Our faith wavers because we recognize that not only has our faith been lacking, but also our obedience to God has been lacking. So how do I, how do I validate all that? How do I reconcile all that? It's called repentance. It's why God forgave you of your sin through Christ, if you've turned from your sin and placed your trust in Him. And the operation is exactly the same way when you live as a Christian and you sin and you fall short of God. You repent. And what is amazing about repentance, when you're living in sin and you have the storms in your life that most of them, a lot of them at least, in some way you've created... Once you turn from your sin, you take culpability for your problems, and you recognize what happened to get you into those problems, you can see a clear view of, okay, I know how to trust God in this. I know what his word tells me. God's word doesn't tell you how to continue living in your sin while also trusting God, because it's incompatible with Christian faith. There is nowhere in the Christian faith that says continue living in sin and trust in the sovereignty of God. So it would be impossible for you to live your life as a faithful Christian while still living in sin and somehow having ultimate faith and confidence in God. Instead, what we do is recognize that we have culpability with our sin. We need to take responsibility for it. We need to turn from it. And from there, the Bible gives us a lot of direction. How many people throughout Scripture and throughout history have fallen short, repented of their sin, and God has restored them in a spirit of gentleness and discipline. But then it's, it's when you get to that place that there is great boldness and confidence that although there may be some fatherly discipline from God, there may be some societal consequences, but there is a clear path forward in faith and confidence in God, even if your sin is the reason you got into the storm. Now, perhaps you didn't sin and, got you in, and get you into that storm. Perhaps it is circumstances. Perhaps you're just following Jesus and you're just taking a little rowboat out in the middle of the sea and all of a sudden you're in a big storm. First thing you need to do is you don't need to doubt God's control over everything. Don't doubt God's control. And I say that because this, we often confuse a couple of questions that are both okay to ask but not okay to ask in the wrong way. Uh, And I put it this way. You may have questions about why things happen, it's valid, isn't it? You may have questions about why things happen. And that, that's okay. That's a valid rationale. But that something happened is a whole other question than why something happened, right? For instance, why did God create the universe? That's a why question, isn't it? And a lot of people ask the why question. You, you, and you can have a lot of conversations about why God created the universe, can't you? But that God created the universe is quite a different question, isn't it? That God created the universe is a completely different categorical place than why God created the universe. Because we can sit and we can talk about all the reasons why God did something. But that God did something is completely different. You have Christians that are debating on whether or not that God created the universe. You'd be having some more questions about their salvation, wouldn't you? 
about do you even know who God is at the beginning? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the universe. We can't get past the first verse if you don't believe that God created the universe. You see how that and why are two different questions? Right. That you are in the situations that you are, that God would put you through storms, is a completely different question than why. And trusting in the sovereignty of God means that you trust that your situation is well within the sovereign care of God. That your situation is well within the arms of the sovereign care of God. The why did God do this? Completely different question. Valid question, but a completely different question. Are we on the same page there? Because I think too many times we don't trust in the sovereignty of God because the first thing that we ask is, well, why did God do this? Valid question. Wrong question to ask when we're thinking about the sovereignty of God. That God did these things. Job was God sovereign over Job's situation. Completely sovereign over it. The why was a bit foggy for Job for a long time. As a matter of fact, until he died and went to heaven and asked, what in the world happened here? But that God was sovereign over his situation was not the question in the book of Job. was not Job's question. So for you, the same thing goes. Ask why. By all means, there is nothing unbiblical about asking why something happened. But that why should not be the reason you don't trust that God is sovereign because you trust that God brought about all things and that God is sovereign over all things. You rest on that God did something. That's how we begin trusting in God's sovereignty and having faith that God is going to bring all things to his completed work. And you can ask the whys, but you cannot let the why govern and drive the truth that God is sovereign. And, and secondly, you need to entrust yourself to God's sovereignty. Right? I'm going to trust myself to God's sovereignty. I mean, it's simply this, right? If a storm is where God wants me, then a storm is where I'll be, right? That's how, you know, that's how you know people are exercising great faith in the Lord because we're not saying, well, if I'm in a storm, I want God to get me out of the storm. I don't want to be in this storm. I wish this storm never would have came, which may be some truth in all of our lives when it comes to the storms that we encounter in our life. But someone who entrusts themselves to the sovereignty of God understands that if I'm in the situation that I am in, in complete obedience to God, then this is where God wants me. And I'm going to trust that God is working it out. All right? Many of you know, me and my wife have gone through two miscarriages in the last, I don't know, eight months. Right? And why that happens, I don't know. And even as a pastor, because I know many women go through those things. And as a pastor, people ask, why do these things happen? And I, I don't know. I'm sure God's going to, if God wants, I'm sure someday he'll let us know. If he wants to. But I trust that in the meantime, I know that God is sovereign. And I entrust myself and my wife to our great Father who is in heaven. Who cares? And it looks quite different than what you and I would want. But we entrust ourselves to the care of God's sovereignty in our life. And if we're in the situation we're in, we trust that God's working it out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we're going to trust that. I'm not asking you to have a blind faith. I mean, a blind faith would say... I don't think Jesus ever calmed the storm. I don't think Jesus ever healed all these diseases. I don't think Jesus, I don't know if Jesus ever did actually resurrect. We, that, that would be a blind faith. I'm not telling you have a blind faith. I'm saying open your eyes up and read the Bible. That's not blind. I have eyewitness accounts of people who had really nice eyes. So all these great things that he did. And when Jesus died and he resurrected and he was seen by hundreds of witnesses that this man who died rose from the dead and appeared before hundreds of people. That's not blind faith. That's trust and confidence in God's sovereignty to bring to completion that which he started. And that's what we're doing here.
Again, I'm also not asking you to be stoic, right? Stoicism, that was even something in the early church that people were fighting uh, because Stoics wanted to bring their philosophy into the Christian church, which Stoics, you know, straight, you've, you've heard of like, don't be a Stoic, right? The, the people that have a concrete face, they don't have emotions, they try to reject all emotion, they try to reject all these worldly things, and if you could push all the worldly things away, and I don't mean worldly as in sin, I just mean things in general, right? That then I won't be bothered by them. No one is asking you to be a Stoic. Biblical Christianity is far from being a Stoic faith. It's a, very, it's a faith that has emotion tied to it. It's a faith where tears are cried. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Christianity is all about mourning and rejoicing. But it's all about those things in light of the sovereignty of God. Right? Emotions are one thing. Right? And they're a completely rational part of the Christian faith when done in obedience to God. Emotions are one thing, but faith in spite of my emotions is a complete other thing. Right? I'm not going to have faith that my emotions are going to bring me to the right conclusion in my life because they're not. I want my emotions to act in accordance with the will of God and the purpose of God. So I'm saying, when in the storm, in God's sovereignty, no one's asking you to not have emotions. What God asks is that in spite of those, that you would trust in him. So the, really question, the real question we have in verse 23, now that you really know the whole story, is that will you, knowing that the road ahead is going to be stormy, it's going to be bumpy, will you do what the disciples do in verse 23? Look at verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And that's where it all started, isn't it? When Jesus gets in the boat and he says, you, you come follow me, are you going to follow him? You know the whole story. And even here, we must understand the disciples were not fools, right? They may not know the whole redemptive story, right? We, don't, we believe that the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. That's when the disciples were, had boldness. That's when we believe the disciples were, were saved and regenerate by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Because even throughout all of the, 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 the Gospels, what do we see the disciples doing? Shrinking back, lacking faith. And you know what you need to understand? Yeah, because the Spirit did not come upon the disciples, and boldness did not come upon the disciples. The new covenant didn't come to the disciples until what? Pentecost, until the book of Acts. And so we aren't saying, as we look at this, that the disciples had the whole picture. They didn't. They weren't even a part of the New Testament church yet because they hadn't even started. However, with that being said, what we can see here is that they had an idea of what it meant to follow Christ. Because after all, they did get in the boat, didn't they? They did follow Christ, didn't they? Others didn't, didn't they? I mean, they left, and there were people that Jesus turned away because they didn't want to follow Jesus. So we understand that the disciples knew something about what it meant to follow Christ, and there was something attached to it. And I think that we know that as Christians. Well, even, even the most uh, uninformed Christian or even the most uninformed person who may profess faith, who may or may not be saved, they just profess faith. Right? We know that, okay, well, I do know there's something attached to this faith. We've got to recognize, seeing the whole picture, that we've got to follow Jesus. We've got to get in the boat. Right? We've got to not find our faith lacking when we encounter fearful situations. And, and that's what I want us to look at as we think about the disciples here. They got into the boat. They didn't know the whole picture, but they were there. 
but like our own faith, sometimes we don't understand the whole picture. And the question is, are we making the decision based on faith or based on the fear of our circumstances? Because what we see here is we see the disciples being reprimanded for their bad response, although they got into the boat, right? Which is something I want you to understand. Like, you can still have a bad response to Christ as you confess to following Christ. You see that? You can still have a bad response to following Christ, even if you are following Christ. You, have, you go through a situation, you're going through a storm, you're going through a trial, you can still respond wrongly to God, and God won't be pleased with that. But yet, you can trust in Christ, you can turn from that, repent is the biblical word we have that, and as you encounter fearful situations, you can courageously and boldly follow Christ. I mean, Jesus has a response to those who lack faith in his plan and his protection and his promise. And you see it there in verse 26. Why are you afraid? Oh, you a little faith. Why are you afraid? Do you trust in my sovereignty? Do you trust in my care? Do you trust in my goodness? And like I've already alluded to, the disciples may not have known the trouble that was ahead of them. I can't imagine they did know all the details. And here's the thing, you don't either, right? And that's the reason why you have to understand the supremacy of Christ. Because when you say you're following Christ, you have no idea what the rest of your life is going to look like. You have no idea. You have no idea if your, your family's going to die or when or how. You have no idea if you're going to get diagnosed with the worst kind of disease that ever imaginable. Right? You're not going to know if your home is going to get attacked. You, the existential realities and, and, and scenarios are, that are alive in our world, you can't have an idea of what could happen to you. But what you can do is trust that in spite of all those things, I believe that the supremacy of Christ is reigning, that I'm going to see my lack of faith as a serious problem, and I'm going to recognize that I need to trust Christ. I'm going to follow him courageously. And we can see, as we look at the whole text... Right? The disciples had at least some kind of excuse that you and I don't have. Right? They had no idea that the, who the person of Jesus was. We, we actually see that being unveiled through the, through the Gospels, don't we? As the Gospels go, they start going, oh, oh. Like, we, like, we don't have to do that. We have it right here in front of us. We know who he is. We know why the Gospel of Matthew was written. It's written that you may know that Jesus forgives people of their sins. We have the whole text right in front of us, and we should anticipate trouble. We should anticipate the storms of life, and yet with courage, we should follow Christ. Point number three, you need to courageously follow Christ. Courageously follow Christ. In Hebrews eleven thirty four, 34, we have the writer of Hebrews given a, a highlight of all the ways that people of old followed, followed God faithfully. And you're dealing in Matthew eleven thirty four with a different element of nature, right? We're not dealing with water. Uh, in Hebrews eleven thirty four, we're dealing with fire, uh, and we see the summation in a small sentence of what we see happening in, in full in Daniel three, when the writer of Hebrews says, "By faith there were these men who quenched the power of fire." Right? You, you remember right Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, right? You may know them by their Hebrew or their uh, Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You remember those guys, right? And, and they were, were standing before uh, Babylon, and they would not renounce their faith. They would not bow to idols, and they risked being burned alive. They looked there at the king and said this, God is able 
to save us in this fire. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow down and worship these things. And, and I love that because so many times what we see in Scripture is like we see in the boat. Well, it sounds really easy to follow Jesus when I know everything that happens. The storm's going to stop. I'm going to be healed. Everything's going to be great. But I think this is a really great example of exercising a faith in the sovereignty of God in spite of not knowing and full well saying explicitly, God is able to save me, but even if he doesn't, I will still be faithful to him. What a wonderful statement of faith in God. And I'm just curious, is that the way that you and I think about God, his sovereignty, and our obedience to him? That I, I pray that God would heal of, of our disease. I pray that God would. And when somebody comes and calls me, I, I'm, you know, we just had somebody got in a bad accident this week. And I pray, God, I pray that you'd heal them. I pray that you'd make the better, right? I pray in spite of whatever happens, I pray that he'd just be faithful to you. I mean, is that how we're going to live our life? I mean, Hebrews eleven thirty four. it's called the hall of faith because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they quenched the power of the fire, not because they knew that God was going to deliver them, because they trusted in spite of whatever scenario happened, they were going to follow God no matter what. In the Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's an account of a young man, an 18-year-old, his name was Jerome Russell, and he was burned at the stake in 1539 for trusting in the gospel. And as he was being brought to his place of execution, he saw another young teenage boy who was about to suffer the same fate as him, who appeared timid and fearful. And Russell responded to him, and he said, Brother, fear not. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The pain that we are to suffer is short and shall be light. Remember, he's getting burned at the stake. But our joy and consolation shall never have an end. Let us therefore strive to enter our Master and Savior's joy by the same straight way which he hath taken before us. Death cannot hurt us, for it is already destroyed by him, for whose sake we are now going to suffer. In the suffering of this martyr, 18-year-old boy. Imagine, these are 18-year-old boys just a couple hundred years ago, right? I mean, maybe things have changed, but I mean, he's still 18 years old, okay? In college, right? He got arrested in college because he trusted in the gospel. And he says, who is bringing this all to an end? Who is being glorified in the suffering? Who is, who is bringing all these things to its rightful end. What are we doing? What's our place in this? What's our joy? What's our consolation in the suffering, in the pain, in the storms of life, even though we know for well as we're walking to this stake that we're not making it out alive? What's our joy? That our joy and consolation shall have no end, but let us be faithful and strive into our Master and Savior's joy, knowing, I love this, by the same straight way which he had taken before us. What is he talking about? Jesus suffered Jesus gone through the greatest trials and the greatest storms and died that you may have life. What faith ought we to have in our trials and our suffering, knowing that Christ has conquered even death? For it, as Russell says, has already been destroyed by him. And for his sake, for his sake, we are now suffering. What, what are you going through in your storm? For whose sake are you going through your storm? 
That's why it's important that you're not going through your storm because of your own sin, right? You need to repent from that. But even repentant sin in the storm that your sin created can still be used for the sake of the Lord because you recognize you were in sin, you repented from that sin, and now your storm becomes a testimony of your faith and confidence in the sovereignty of God. And though you suffer, it is but light and momentary. That's what Scripture teaches us. We need to courageously follow Christ. And you're going to need courageous faith in the supremacy of Christ if you're going to persevere the trials of your life. That's why so many people walk away from the faith. It's not because they were saved and they weren't saved. They never counted the cost. They never recognized that Jesus was serious when he said, whoever would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's a lot of spectators of Christ out there. We see that even in the Gospels. There were very few followers, there were very few disciples who understood the nature of what it meant to follow Christ. And it takes great courage to follow Christ. A couple of things as we close. One, you don't need to fear your circumstances, right? Don't fear. Your, are you going to have fear in your circumstances? Absolutely. You know, if I were being led to the stake to be martyred, my legs would be shaken. My palms would be very sweaty. But knowing the word of God, I would trust that he would produce faith in me, that I would walk and I would be faithful in spite of it. Secondly, look to the person and work of Christ In everything in your life, if you cannot understand what it means to look to the person and work of Christ, you're going to lack faith, you're going to lack confidence, you're going to lack lack what it means to be a biblical Christian because what we see in Scripture and throughout all history, when people are going through all the problems that they're going through, I don't care what it is, they say, I trust in the person of Jesus, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that everything that has been created by him, through him, and for him. And he's bringing all things under the counsel of his will. And the work that he did, right? Because even, a, even, a, uh, even a, a tyrannical monarch could do that, right? Everything's under his control, right? He can bring all things into the order of his will, right? In, in a small microcosm, right? Even a tyrannical monarch could do that. But a tyrannical monarch doesn't, as he's bringing all things under control of his will, then would take your place and die on the cross to conquer the death Conquer fear and conquer death once and for all for all those who would turn from their sin and place their trust in him. That is not a tyrannical monarch. That is a God who loves and is holy and his justice is poured out on Christ, who loves the fact that those who he has called would turn from their sins, place their trust in him, and every single day after that, trust his care, which is that third part there. Trust his care. And I want you to just notice something, because when I say trust is care, I'm not promising you health, wealth, and prosperity. Because I'm going to tell you, Jerome Russell, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they all trusted in the care of God, didn't they? Every one of them. But that did not include existential care when it came to that they were going to make it. They trusted in the sovereign care of God, even though they had a good chance of knowing they weren't going to make it out alive. And that is the ultimate understanding of the care of God. Because if you understand the person and work of Christ, you understand that the person and work of Christ prepared you for the moment where you're going to meet mortality and you're going to enter into the presence of God. You want to talk about the ultimate care of God, the ultimate love of God, the ultimate sovereignty of God, that when every single one of us, and we will, and I don't know what your end is going to be, but your end will be, 
that God has made a way that you would not have ultimate fear and ultimate terror as you come into the face of a holy God, but that you would, as Hebrews 11 says, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that you would lay aside every sin that so easily entangles you and you would run the race that is set before you, like Christ has ran the race. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before me endured the cross. With a joy set before you of the internal reward that awaits those who are faithful in Christ, spur you on to be faithful in light of the trials that you face. And that's the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me?